Uh, good to see you all tonight. We're going to be back in James chapter 4. If you have a Bible, if you turn there, if you don't have a Bible, no problem. There's one in the seat back in front of you, and it'll be on the screen here tonight. James chapter 4. Before we get into that, I want to remind you of something really, really special that's coming up. We've got a lot of stuff coming up, uh, but one thing that I want you to write right now, get your pen, get your whatever you're writing on, and mark down March 4, Saturday, March 4. It's coming up, y'all, Saturday, March 4. We are going to have a very, 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 very special worship service here at the Neighborhood Church because we will be commissioning a new pastor in our church. We, of course, are drawing to the end of the candidacy process and time frame with Kathy Kiesler. So let's just thank her, thank God. March 4, you're going to be hearing about it more and more as we go. You're gonna, it's going to be posted on Facebook and all that. But I want your lovely faces here to affirm and encourage and celebrate as we commission that is sending out into this role of ministry as an elder or pastor in our church. Kathy has been living into this leadership and she has been praying for you all. She has been investing in our times of worship planning things together. She is planning a great Stations of the Cross. She has been working, 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 and living into this role. We are just saying amen. We affirm and encourage, and, and it's just accept that God has called her to this in our church. So March 4th, you're going to hear more about it, but I want you all to make your efforts to be there and encourage her and affirm her. It's going to be a really special time. How many of you made it to our deacon ordination service? Were you on there? Wasn't that just an excellent, excellent night, just an encouraging night? Well, we want to have an encouraging night again at this time. And we're calling it, by the way, a commissioning because Kathy's already been ordained. We, we kind of view ordination like baptism. It's kind of that first step into, uh, like baptism is a first step into the life in the church. Ordination is the first step or marking out into saying, this person has been called to be a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Kathy's already been ordained. What we're doing is commissioning her into this specific role as a minister of the gospel. You with me? Cool? March 4. Be there, be square. We're going to look at James. You can be there or you can be square. We're going to look at James chapter 4 in just a moment. The last several weeks in James, we've been talking about living our faith specifically in relationships with others. Y'all want to know something? Christianity is a relational religion. And I even hate using the word religion. But just when, when you think about all the other faiths or expressions of life in this world, not one of the major religions, the major faiths, is as other-centered as ours. And so James, of course, as every letter in the New Testament, they address relationships. Because when we get relationships wrong... I think our world loses. Jesus says, they'll know that you're followers of me by the love that you have for one another. So if the world is watching and we are a bunch of chickens with our head cut, cut off and we're running around slandering one another, controlling one another, manipulating one another, it's not just us that loses, it's the world that loses. 
So these several weeks in the letter of James, he's been addressing how we ought to live our faith specifically in relationships with others. And he's addressing a community that's in chaos because they've been, they've been uh, not controlling their tongues. They've been speaking out and speaking lies. They've uh, been prejudiced to people of a different socioeconomic status. They've been, uh, they've been oppressing and controlling others. Next week we'll see how these rich people are even violently oppressing poor people. And we just see this community in chaos. And I'm grateful that our little Christian community at the neighborhood church is not in chaos. But our society is in chaos. So these are good reminders for us, not just for our community, for our families, for our workplace, for our neighborhoods, but it's for our society at large. Last night, Amy and I had dinner with a couple who's not a part of our church, and they said, hey, have you been talking about politics? Have you been preaching about it? Have you been addressing it? What have you been doing? Because I feel like, we, I mean, there's just so much angst and unrest. What are you saying? And I said, well, mm, I'm not talking about politics. I'm talking about a political climate in which we're called to love our neighbor as ourselves." And so... I said, eh, ish. I'm more interested not in public policy, but civility in the public square and discourse. And James has been so, so timely for us to remind us how we ought to speak to one another, especially enemies and especially difference. So how do we live and love and make peace in a divided and violent world. James has been a tell-it-like-it-is mentor, and tonight he's going to pick up the topics of slander and boasting and knowing what's right but not doing what's right. And if you read these two paragraphs as we're about to, you might wonder how on earth it is they are connected. But the common thread with this slander and boasting and knowing right but doing, not doing it, is one thing and it's arrogance or it's self-importance. And I see it every day. I see it in Facebook when people care more about being right than loving another. I see it on the news when it begins to bleed not from a disagreement with a policy but with a person. And I begin to think about in our workplaces where you have this constant jockeying for position and, and you want to elevate yourself to the detriment of another. You want to elevate yourself even if it means lowering another. And it's all, all of it is just trying to be self-important when in our faith, to live our faith, we're not called to be selfish or self-important. We're called to be selfless and other-focused. So James is going to talk about these three seemingly unrelated things, but through them all, the common thread is this arrogance or this self-importance, and it's a timely reminder for us in our neighborhoods and in our political climate. So let's read these two paragraphs, and let's see if you can catch that subtle arrogance that is behind each of these reminders. You with me? We're going to start in verse 11. We're going to go down to verse 17. It starts by saying, Brothers and sisters, 
So he's talking about this community, our church, these people who are called to live their faith. Do not slander one another. Because anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. So when you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who's able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Did you catch that arrogance? Did you catch that little thread? Here's how I see it, and this is on the screen. First, we see this arrogance toward others. James calls it slandering, right? Brothers and sisters, don't slander one another. It's this arrogance toward others that says, I'm right, I've got it, you don't. And the reason why this is a subtle arrogance is this. Sometimes we can dress it up and call it, I'm just being real. There is a family member that always says, I'm just saying. See, Stephanie knows I'm just saying. She's not my blood family, but she knows I'm just saying. We can call it truth or just the facts. No, James calls it slander. And slander is elevating yourself and demeaning the other. That's an arrogance there. And he's going to connect it to judgment as we're about to see. The second arrogant thread you see is this arrogance toward the future or arrogance toward tomorrow. You see that in that middle section. He gives that hypothetical about the guy that is just so certain that everything's going to go according to plan. But if you've made plans, you know that nothing goes according to plan. It's this arrogance. He calls it boasting. You with me? Then finally, as we close tonight, we're going to look at that verse 17 that says uh, there's this arrogance toward obedience, right? I know what's right, but I'm not going to do it. And the arrogance there is that subtle way of saying that must not apply to me. There's arrogance. That's the common thread working its way through these seemingly unrelated paragraphs. And so why then is arrogance or self-importance such a slippery slope? Did y'all notice the title of this sermon? It is probably the most like alliterative, alliterative, like, I don't know what to call it. Like I went to seminary to learn how to do these kind of titles. The slippery slope of self-importance. Why is it such a slippery slope? Why is it so subtle? And here's why. Because the self-important person doesn't even see it as a problem. And here's what I mean by that. He or she doesn't even see that they can be wrong. The arrogant or self-important person cares more about being right, cares more about getting ahead, that that person 
may not even see that they are continually putting themselves over people and even over God. And that's what James says if you look with me in verse 11. He says, brothers and sisters, don't slander one another. He says, anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them, okay? So how is that slander and judgment connected? It's because this one person, this arrogant person, looks at that one and says, I'm judging you, I'm putting you in this place, I'm putting you in this box, and therefore you are not a person created in the image of God, you are this or that or the other. And I am equating your opinion or your status or your job description or your this, that, or the other, your hurt, your hang-up. I am putting all of those things above you as an individual made in the image of God. I'm judging you and I'm saying, this is you, this is me. And slander is elevating one person and putting the other. And so what is that? It's just judging There's this connection between slander and judgment. But he goes on and he says, if you're slandering or judging a person, you're also slandering or judging God's law. Do you see that with me in verse 11? He says, anybody who's slandering or speaking against another person in the law is judging it. And he says, when you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but you're sitting in judgment on it. So do you see that slander is not just putting yourself over another person, you're sitting in judgment even on God's law. Are you with me here? I want us to really follow James's logic because there's this thread of I'm more important than this person and I'm even more important than God. And here's what he means by that. He says you're not being a doer of the law, you're being a judge of the law. So here's the point. When we slander and judge others, We elevate ourselves above the God who commanded us in His law to love our neighbor as ourself. So when you're slandering or judging another person, you're not just casting judgment on them, you're casting judgment on the God who said, this is a neighbor to be loved, not a person to be judged. So there's this connection then between slandering a neighbor and even slandering God. Because if you flip back to James 2.8, you see him saying that if you are prejudiced, if you are casting judgment and saying to the rich, well-appointed person, come up here, be my friend, sit in the front, and you're saying to the poor person, sit in the back, if you're making these snap judgments, what you're doing is saying not keeping the royal law, which is James 2.8, and he's quoting, love your neighbor as yourself. So he's not talking about the whole Old Testament law. You're sitting judgment on the whole Old Testament law. Hear me. You are not keeping the one law that makes sense of all the others. Hear me here. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with everything you've got. And the second is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. The whole law and prophets can hang their whole weight on those two things. So if you are slandering a brother, it's as if you took all that God has said and done and thrown it out. Because all that God has said and done can be wrapped up in love God and love your neighbor as yourself. So when we're gossiping in our community, we're not just um, just causing the clicks and fractions. We are actually going counter to what God has invited his people to be and do, and that is lovers of him and others. And so when we're gossiping, when we're caring more about being right than loving, it damages our witness to the world and it fractures our community. And he says, here's the problem. You're not God. In verse 12, he says, there's only one lawgiver and judge, 
The one who's able to save and destroy. And the Adam translation is, so who do you think you are? When we gossip, when we trash others, we're saying to God, I don't have to love my neighbor as myself. And gossip is church cancer. When it starts to talk about the other person, it doesn't just stay with that person. James has told us about that small little tongue that is so capable of starting a forest fire with just the tiniest spark. I'm going to get real practical here and and say that churches fall apart when people begin to talk about the pastors or the guys and gals up here in front to everybody but the guys or gals up front. James also reminded us that not many of us should be teachers because we'll be judged more strictly. Why? Because we open our mouths and talk more than anybody else publicly in this church. So it means we're going to step on toes and we're going to make mistakes. Hello? And so what happens then is that over time, you all, guess what, may be pretty frustrated with me. You may be pretty frustrated with the special announcement that came into your hand about this clothes closet, and you don't want to go do some nasty clothes in our neighborhood. That's fine. But would you please commit to talk to me? Would you please commit to talk to Pastor Bud? Would you please commit to talk to Pastor Kathy? Would you please commit to talk to us before you talk to every other person? Because what happens then is it begins to breed distrust. And when there's enough distrust, it begins to breed disunity. And the truth of the matter is, the neighborhood church with you and your beautiful shirts are too new in this new mission, this renewed vision that God has given us to make the whole thing come apart. So would we commit to be a community that is not slandering one another? Because who are we to judge? Who are we to put ourselves above another? When we follow a Jesus who did not consider equality with God something to be exploited, but he made himself nothing, would we commit to be a people who make ourselves nothing so that we can come under and lift others up? Because it's hard to give people a hand up. Or to support them and push them if we're judging and slandering them. There's a fine line. I want to say this really practically too. There is a real fine line between venting and slandering. And this has eaten my lunch. Because I want to throw everything and baptize it and just call it venting. Earlier we were saying, I'm just saying... This is just truth, y'all. Those people that we're closest to, there's a real fine line between venting and slander. A real, real, real fine line. So it's really eating my lunch because I've got to check my heart and I've got to be careful because my deepest desire for my family and my church is that we would be humble and hospitable. Which is why if you're looking at your Bible, we just read verse 11, what does it come right after? Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. If you feel like you're encroaching on slander, if you feel like you are encroaching on another, humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. Don't lift yourself up by stepping on the backs of others. That's arrogance. That's slander. Slander lowers my neighbor and elevates me, and it puts myself in a position that only God has. God knows 
people's hearts. We don't. God knows the experiences they've come from. We don't. It's arrogance. And the second picture of arrogance James paints for us is here in verse 13. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this city or that, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. What he's painting a picture of is a certain person who is arrogant in the way of presumption. You hear me? What he's saying is not this. Don't make plans. Right? That is foolish. I think sometimes when we come to the biblical text, we just start to impose all these interpretations so quick and say, well, here's a guy that's making a plan to make some money and have business, right? Well, dadgum, what am I supposed to do? Just spend my money today, not make a plan for the future? I mean, do I not need to have any uh, way forward or way ahead? How can I ever go on vacation? No, he's not against planning, he's against presumption. And here's what I mean by that. Have you seen a movie like Ocean's Eleven where they have some elaborate plan that they lay out and it's got some slick music under it and you assembled the whole team and you're all fired up and ready to go? If they did that plan, the movie would be 14 minutes long. Everything goes wrong. My cousin's here tonight and her parents and my parents left this week for a ski trip. Ask me how many days they skied. Zero. Were they wrong for planning? No. They weren't presuming that everything would be great. Why? Because they looked at the weather and said, Well, dadgum, we planned this trip, but the weather looks pretty bad, so we'll see what we can do. Well, the weather was so bad and the roads were so closed that they had all the best plans in the world, but thankfully they came in not presuming that anything would happen. So they went all the way to a few other states to go watch movies and eat and just hang out. The picture he's painting here is the person that presumes you can depend on the future. And because he's using a business illustration, he's painting a picture of the person who presumes you can secure your own future. So the picture he's painting is this guy that says, look, tomorrow we're going to go to Fort Worth and I'm going to secure this huge deal and we're going to get so paid and we're going to be so legit and everything can... Not fall apart. I'm so convinced of it. No, what he's saying is there's no room for God's grace. There's no room for God's will. You're presuming the future and you're even presuming that you can secure your own future. And the fact of the matter is one diagnosis, one sit down with your boss and everything can blow up. And it's happened recently to people in this room and it will happen soon to someone else in this room. And so James's antidote is to remind us of these two things. The first is this. You are not in control. And so he says that in verse 14. You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. He's basically quoting, if you're writing anything down, Proverbs 27.1. We can make all the best plans, but we put them out there and we say, but we don't know what tomorrow will happen. What will happen? The second warning, the second reminder, he says, what is your life? 
You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Imagine the dew that settles early, early, early in the morning on the grass. And as soon as the sun hits, where does it go? It's gone. So he's saying two things. You're not in control. You have no idea what's going to happen. And the second thing is you are so frail. You are so frail. And so if this is bad news to you, I'm sorry. But that is the reality of being a human being. And so James's answer then is this. It's not a magic mantra. What it is is a declaration of dependence. Look with me in verse 15. Instead of this presumption, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Now what James is after is not a magic incantation that I say, hey, see y'all March 4th for Kathy's commissioning if God wills. We can say that. People do say that. You hear it especially in the Middle Eastern culture, in the Muslim faith. They say if God wills, after everything. Because they would take a verse like this from their scriptures and they would say, yes, you know, I've got to say this or that exactly. And what James is saying is there is space to say something like if God wills it. But what he's after is a disposition or a life that is lived as if you shouldn't have to say it every time. You with me? We should live our lives in such a way that we are radically indebted to God's grace where we don't take every breath for granted, but we take every breath as a gift. Because when we take every breath as a gift, when our plans come apart, we're able to walk with Him and to see that, yes, He's even with us in the valley of the shadow. Do you know that I quote Psalm 23 up here so much? Because Psalm 23 is my lifeblood. Psalm 23 is the reminder to us that He even leads us through the valley of the shadow. It's not just that He's with us, it's that He leads us. And that's a powerful reminder that says, perhaps He is not surprised when your plans fall apart. And perhaps you can actually trust Him for each moment when your bodies are falling apart. We should live our lives in such a way that if God wills it, then I can do this. Whether we're saying it, we ought to be living it. We should be declaring our dependence on Him because we have no idea what tomorrow holds and we have no idea how much time we have. This is as practical as practical gets. And what James is doing is trying to chip away at the arrogance because we're just not even aware of it. We're just not even aware of it because guess what? You woke up again today. We're not aware of it because you made it safely into the parking lot tonight. Sometimes we pray in our family, God, thank you for all the things it took to get us here to this moment now. Because all you have to do is be in contact with someone whose plans have just fallen apart. And then it wakes us up. I am a planner, a planner, a planner, a planner. When we got married, I planned my dang wedding and I was called Groomzilla because I had a binder with every second planned for every person. And I didn't want, I didn't want any of my friends in the groom's party having fun because, dadgummit, they needed to know where they were going to stand. Because the next day at the rehearsal, they would have no idea what's going on, so i got to make a plan for them. We've been married for a good while, and so how that looks now is I've got a little black book. It's not my big wedding binder. And Amy was thumbing through it and laughing at me the other day. 
I have a table of contents for my journal. I am a planner. But you know what I do with my plans? I've got long-range plans. I've got short-term plans. I've got daily plans. I've got all those plans. You know what I do in that little stupid black book? I write a to-do list prayer. And it helps me every morning. I write out my little bullets for the day because I was running through too many post-it notes. And I keep it in one binder. And I submit them to the Lord. And it goes like this. This, is, this may be helpful for you. It may not. But it's on the screen. Lord, this day is stretched out before us. Okay? So I'm looking at my little day, and I'm thinking, okay, it ain't just me that's going out, it's us. I've got to remind myself that this life with God is an us, not a me. Lord, this day is stretched out before us, but only you know what's ahead. So as we go together, let us walk when it's time to walk, run when it's time to run, and rest when it's time to rest. Let me live each moment in step with you. Just to pause another second, this is my life. When I wake up in the morning, let me tell you and confess to you, the very, 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 very hardest thing for me to do is sit on my little couch in my little office and be still with God. So y'all think that, you know, well, Adam's a professional Christian and whatever, he's a pastor, he's got it all together. The hardest thing for me to do is walk when it's time to walk and rest when it's time to rest. I want to run. But sometimes God wants us to walk with Him at a walking pace. Sometimes He makes us lie down in green pastures. But the trick is, will we be aware and awake enough to say, God, what are you doing and can I run with the fastest and walk with the slowest? My little prayer goes on. You know the way because you are the way. And then it says, May the yoke be easy and the burden light. Because when we're looking at our to-do list, doesn't it feel heavy? There's all this stuff i got to do. May the yoke be easy and the burden light because we shoulder it together. May I remember your promise today that you will never leave me nor forsake me. Because let me tell you, temptation, I feel like everybody else is going to leave me or forsake me. This day is yours, I am yours, you are mine. That's my to-do list prayer. And I wrote that out because I was tired of praying for years and years another powerful prayer, which is the serenity prayer. Who knows the serenity prayer? I say I was tired of it because it scared me and it reminded me that I am powerless. Here's the beginning of the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity. Grant me the peace to accept the things I cannot change. The courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. That for me is so crucial because what James is talking about in this passage is the difference between controlling your destiny and surrendering your will to God's will. And so the courage to know the difference, the wisdom to know the difference is that I cannot change people. I cannot change my employment status because that's even dependent on someone else hiring or firing me. And you know that this is prayed by millions of people in recovery. Why? Because they're not even powerless. They can't even control their hurts, their hang-ups, and their habits. Step one of the 12 steps is admit I am powerless to control 
my tendency to do wrong. I'm kind of paraphrasing, but it's admit I'm powerless. The first step is saying I'm out of control and I am a mist. And James reminds us that we ought to surrender our plans to his. So God, would you give us peace to release control and find our dependence on you? Finally, the third little thread of arrogance I believe James is keeping us awake to so that we can humble ourselves before the Lord and repent is here in verses 16 and 17. He ties off that whole bit about boasting. He says, so as it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. And the final step of arrogance is that arrogance toward obedience. He says, you know what else is evil? Look in verse 17. If anyone knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. The arrogance here is, oh, this doesn't apply to me. Tonight, I know you're tired. Tonight, I know you've had a crazy week. Tonight, I know that it's not like the, the slickest, awesomest text. We've got these two crazy practical paragraphs in James. And I know the tendency, because I do it too when I'm reading Scripture or hearing others, is I want to say, nah, 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 nah. That's not for me. That's for somebody else. Man, I wish so-and-so was here because, dang, man, they really need to hear it. And I think the reminder is when we get to these places, if we are around the Scriptures, if we're around the body of Christ enough, you know what we're around? More and more of what it means to live like Jesus, to look like Jesus, and to be like Jesus. And the problem with the more we know, it's the more we are, in fact, responsible for. Because if we know the truth, if we know the light, the more we suppress it, it not only damages us, but our habits can become our character. And that's like we did last week when we were walking down here on the floor in both directions. We can get ourselves further and further from friendship, from friendship with God, because we just continue to say, yeah, that's nice, that sounds good, but it has no bearing in my actual day-to-day -day life. The greatest problem with Christianity in America is we assume that Christianity is about believing, not about living. And so if anyone knows what we ought to do and do not do it, I'm sorry, you're missing the mark. That's what the word sin means. It means that you've thought that all these things are nice, good things to know, but not to be lived. And there's an arrogance that says, you know what, I'd rather just be a hearer, not a doer. Jesus, that sounded really nice when you said, pray for my enemies and bless those who persecute me. But I'd rather slander them. God, it sounded really nice that I should surrender my will to yours and pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done, not mine. But no, I, I've got this. If anyone knows and doesn't do, we're missing the mark. It's sin. And so I want to close this evening by confessing or maybe being awake to those subtle arrogances that can creep up in our lives and relationships. We've got to be aware of the moments when the Spirit of God is inviting us to live our faith rather than grieving Him by resisting it. 
So I want to close with this prayer. It's another prayer. I hope that these little prayers have been helpful for you. I hope that you can walk away with some of this. But what I'm really hopeful for is that we would right now in this moment, as we come to the table of communion and as we respond to God in worship and prayer, my real hope is that we would be awake to those little things we've not done. And those little places where that pride and arrogance has crept up. And so the prayer I want to close with is this. It's every morning, if you do the daily morning office in the Book of Common Prayer used by the Episcopals and Anglicans. And it's so funny because this is in the morning. This is right when you're starting your day, right? But it's a way of going back through the day before, before you start the next one. You with me? And you sort out those things you've done, which we're more aware of. But it's also confessing those things we've not done. Where are those places where I've not loved my neighbor as myself? Where are those places I've not given my time, energy, effort, resources to someone in need? Where are those places I have not honored my spouse with my words, attitudes, actions, thoughts? Were those ways I haven't been an encouragement? So I want to close with this prayer. And then the band will come and we'll just have a few minutes of silence. And then we'll transition into our time of communion. This is just a space for you to live your faith in verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. And go back through these places of arrogance. Go back through these things you've known but not done. And let's close with these words. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against You in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. Let's just spend a few moments confessing and finding His grace before we come to the table. Tonight's benediction is Romans 15, 5 through 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus, that together you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now go in peace.